All right. Good morning, everyone watching online. I trust that you are doing well. Welcome to uh, Free Life Church. Different style of doing church, but it's wonderful to have you. Uh, you cannot see it, but some people took the time last night and come and put all your printed out pictures on the chairs. It looks, it looks pretty cool. So I have some of you here, and uh, Josh is far more silent than usual. So it's wonderful to have everyone, everyone here. But I trust you're doing well. I trust you are healthy and be ready for a little bit of encouragement from God's Word. And uh, we're missing everyone. And, uh, you know, we love to worship here. So it is not as, it is just different when we don't get to worship together. And I'm looking forward to when we can worship together. But I'm going to ask you to go grab your Bibles. We're not going to have any notes or scriptures come up um, on the video, so sometimes we are going to read some lengthy portions of Scripture. So if you could go and take a moment to go get your physical Bibles so that you can follow along, it is much, uh, much more easy to follow along when you have an actual Bible. When there's no Scriptures coming up, sometimes if we read lengthy portions of Scripture, people struggle to follow. So please go get your Bibles. And uh, while you do that, just a few announcements for those who already had their Bibles and are still watching. Um, I put out a video on Friday with some practical details. We are suspending, and I'm going to give them to you now again, we are suspending all church activity until the end of March because of COVID-19, and we will reevaluate at the end of March what we are going to do. Uh, you should be aware of that already, but I thought I would let you know again. And then obviously this morning, Keir Taylor was supposed to be with us, but uh, he was coming up from South Africa. He's a wonderful evangelist, a wonderful gentleman, but he is not going to be with us because his flights were canceled, not his choice. They canceled his flights for him, even just by the closing down of Europe. Uh, he was going to travel through Europe. So obviously Keir is not with us this morning. And then uh, while meetings are suspended, we are working on ways to get connected online and all the leaders met on Zoom. We actually had quite a fun, quite a fun meeting. Um, actually, I don't know if it was all the leaders. As many as could make it met on Zoom the other day. And uh, we're going to be using Zoom for our other gatherings, even though they're online gatherings, things like life groups, perhaps some prayer meetings, and some other creative ideas that we're coming up with. So please uh, be aware and please check the website. Please check your email and social media for updates and announcements, that's where they'll be posted, uh, for ways to stay connected, and for outreach opportunities. We may have some outreach opportunities coming up that we can touch the community, and we're looking into some of that now. So we'll put all of that out on social media, on the website, and uh, in your email. So please check your email as well. So if you could go to John chapter 4, because you should have your Bibles by now, John chapter 4. And then while you turn there, I share a few things I said the other day when I put out my uh, video, I think it was Friday, is that there were two people in the Bible who fell asleep in a boat, and one was Jonah, and one was Jesus. And so I'm not going to go through everything again that I spoke about the other day in the video, but it does help for where we are going today. And in every storm... Um, there are going to be decisions that have to be made in the storm. And many of us feel as if our lives have been thrown into a storm. I've had people even phone me and use those words. But in every storm, decisions have to be made. 
Questions are often asked. Things come up in the heart when life is giving you lemons, so to speak. Things come up in the heart. Questions that we ask reveal the heart, and often what's inside is demonstrated. When we get squeezed, when there's pressure, what's inside begins to come out. So we see that Jesus calmed the storm because He was over the storm. We see that Jonah found the courage to obey God's call. So the decision he made when the storm of life came was he discovered courage in his heart to obey the call of God during what was a storm. The disciples, however, asked the wrong question. They read the situation, they saw the storm that was going on, and their question that arose in their heart put them at the center of everything that was going on, which means it's probably not going to go well after that. And they said, Jesus, do you not care that we are perishing? And so their question revealed the heart, the questions we ask in the storm. Yet in Romans 8, it says, we know that all things work together for good that those who love God and those who are called according to His purpose. That's a, that's a, it's a well-known verse. It's a famous verse. And as I began to meditate on what was happening with the coronavirus and all the shutdowns all over the world, I just began to say to the Lord, Lord, speak to me. Give me either single words or scriptures. And straight away, this verse dropped into my heart. And it put an excitement in me, obviously not for the virus and not for the loss of life, but an excitement in me because I know God is good. I know God is good. And I know that God is turning this for His good. He is using it and He is turning it. In fact, God is so good at taking things that are seemingly terrible or taking storms and throwing the storms back in the sky, as Billy Graham used to say. He's so good at turning situations that after the fact, people create a strange theology sometimes where they say, well, you know, that storm came from God because look at all the good things that have come from it. It must have been from God. It doesn't mean he's the source of every storm. It just means that he's really good at using something and turning it for His purposes and turning it for good. Amen. And all the people said, Amen. I wish, I wish you were here. So, um, with all of that, I believe that we are seeing amazing opportunities uh, in what's happening. There's an amazing opportunity for the gospel. I, I really believe that. When the world is afraid, there's an amazing opportunity for the gospel when Christ becomes realized. In 1 Peter 3, it says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. And so there's, an, there's a probably not seen before in my lifetime the opportunity for the gospel to be shared to such a great degree. And so I really believe that. And I believe there's also a wonderful opportunity for the awakening of believers. For the awakening of believers. I stood up for the first week this year, and I believe prophetically the Lord was beginning to show me that this year is a year of awakening. And I said, it doesn't always come in the way we perceive, but this is an opportunity for believers to be awakened unto life, to see who is our God really, what do we believe, do we know Him, do we not know Him? And it's not a rebuke. It's very normal for people to, in a sense, start with a little bit of panic or when things are unusual, we don't know what to do. But where we run in crisis reveals the heart. And there's an opportunity, I believe, for God to use this to awaken His people and to awaken His people to ask the right questions. 
in the storm because decisions have to be made in the storm. Questions have to be asked. And I don't believe the right question is, God, why are we perishing? But the right question is, Lord, how can we partner with you? Because you are right now turning this for good. That is your nature. You are good. That is your nature. So how are you turning this for good? And I believe, lastly, that there's a great opportunity for unity. So that was, I put that out in my video a couple days ago. I encourage you to go watch it. It's up somewhere, I think on YouTube, as well as on social media. So you should be in John 4 by now. And today, I want to speak to you about being uncomfortable to becoming unstoppable. Moving from uncomfortable to unstoppable. And we're going to look at John 4, and uh, it's a strange text, some people would say, but it's a great story of the Samaritan woman at the well. And if we see it through the right lens and we see it through the right heart, we'll see that it's a wonderful opportunity for what we're actually facing right now. And so we're going to look into some things of historical significance, cultural significance, because they, they give the, the correct understanding of what's actually going on there. And we're actually going to start at the end of the story. So if you have your Bibles, you should be in John 4 by now. And please go to verse 27. We're going to read from verse 27 to verse 43. So let's read. And at this point, his disciples came. Let me give you a bit of history, sorry. Jesus is with the Samaritan woman at the well. He gives her words of knowledge about her life. He shouldn't have been speaking with a woman. It was very uh, unusual for rabbis to be speaking to women. In fact, they, they, some strict rabbis want a name called the bruised and the broken because they wouldn't even speak to wives or their own daughters uh, in public. They weren't allowed to speak to women in public. So they would shut their eyes when they would walk past a woman. They'd walk into things. That's historically true. And so they became known as the bruised and the broken. And so here's Jesus seen as a rabbi, he's speaking to a woman. So they arrive back and they marvel that he's speaking to a woman and she's a Samaritan. They've been in the city buying bread. And so they come after Jesus has already spoken to this lady and her heart's been changed. And we pick up the story there. At this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot went away because she came to the well to draw water and went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? They went out of the city and came to him. Then they went out of the city and they came to him. And in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? He's speaking about a spiritual aspect. They're seeing it only on the natural plane. And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And I believe that we are there right now. There's an opportunity for the gospel right now. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered, and you have entered into their labors." 
verse 38, <clears throat> sorry, 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him. Why? Because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me, this is what she said, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed in him because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of you, what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Then he spent two days with them, as it says next. So, by all accounts, this is what we would call in today's world a revival or awakening. There's in a whole region of a city is turned to Christ. Conviction has come. Everything has changed. Everything has turned. And it's something that I think is unprecedented for the Samaritans in that time. And so I want to speak to you about what led up to that. Because they were uncomfortable, which we'll see, but they became unstoppable. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into the beginning of the story. Father, I thank you for your word. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for all of those who are watching for all of our wonderful brothers and sisters. And I pray the Holy Spirit that your anointing begins to rest on them. I thank you for your presence in their homes, in their lives. I thank you that we do not have a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I thank you that you are with us. I thank you, God, that you are turning this for good. And so we pray as we come to your word, let your courage rise up in people's hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, there are many ways that God will help us and position us to become partners with what He's doing, to turn something for good. And I believe this story is one of the ways that He does that, specifically when it starts with us being uncomfortable. So, Go in your Bibles to John 4, verse 1. Turn the page back if that's what your Bible does. That's what mine does. Because we know the end of the story. We know how the story ended, but how did it start? And uh, before we read that, I want to give you some historical and cultural background. So if you, even though you're watching, if you could stick with me on this portion, it won't be long, but it's very, very important to understand what was actually happening. Firstly, the Jews and the Samaritans. I, I'm not sure we can understand or we're aware of the level of animosity that was between the Jews and the Samaritans. What had happened was king of Syria, King Sargon, it mentions this in Isaiah, had taken northern, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel captive at about 720, 721 BC, and he had taken them into exile. But he had, led, he had left a whole group of, of Jewish people there, of Israelites there, not a large group, the rest that he had taken with him. But he conquered multiple territories. And so then he repopulated Israel at that time, not in Jesus' time, in 720 BC, with all the other people from different territories. So they brought in their faiths and their gods and their cultures and all their ways of life. And those remaining Israelites intermarried with them. And they, that, those remaining Jews or remaining Israelites with all the changes and with all the influence became known as Samaritans. So the Jews hated them. They considered them those who betrayed God, those who betrayed them. They actually considered them to be cursed. They called them the accursed people. So there was a, a, a high level of hate 
between them. They, weren't, they, didn't, they wouldn't speak to each other. They wouldn't look at each other. And then the Samaritans, after they got established as Samaritans, they actually went back into Deuteronomy 27. You can go read about it. Um, and they changed the Scripture. In Deuteronomy 27, it talks about these two mountains. When Moses said, when the people of God come into the promised land with Joshua, because Moses died and Joshua took them in. When they crossed the Jordan River, I want half of the tribe, six tribes, to be up on one mountain, Mount Ebal, and the other half on Mount Gerizim. And Mount Ebal was a barren mountain with no life, no fruit. It's just barren. And from that mountain, that was the imagery to pronounce curses. If you don't obey me, because that was the old covenant, blessing or curse. That was the covenant of Moses. So they had to, half the tribes had to stand up there and pronounce as you cross over, if you don't do this, we'll, you're going to be, and they had to say, yes, amen, we'll obey. And if we don't, yes, that'll come upon us. And the other half of the tribes had to stand upon Mount Gerizim, which was a fruitful, luscious, and they had to pronounce the blessing of God. And so what had happened, though, was there was an altar. God said, build an altar on Mount Gerizim. Sorry, on Mount Ebal. Build an altar, altar on Mount Ebal, which was the barren mountain. Why? And it actually says it that it had to be an altar of uncut stones. It said no man's tools was allowed to touch it. It had to be earth, natural stones, because it was pointing to grace. One day there's going to be a sacrifice that has nothing to do with the effort of man built or, or coming into a world that's barren, because the system of death rules until Jesus came, come into the system that's barren by grace of not of your effort and the blessing and the favor of God will come that way, which was Christ. And so God said, build an altar unto me on Mount Ebal. So the, they did that, but then the Samaritans, when they became Samaritans, went back to Deuteronomy 27, I think it's verse 4, and they changed the Scripture. And they changed that scripture to build an altar on Mount Gerizim. So they changed something. So that brought even, even more animosity. But why did they do that? Because they had taken that ground and they built a temple there on that mountain, the, the mountain of blessing, like Lot, that chose the best land. So they built a temple there and they worshiped there. And now there was arguments about because Jacob's well when Jacob discovered God and built a well and an altar, Jacob's well was there on that mountain, Mount Gerizim. And so they, Jesus in John chapter 4 comes to Jacob's well, and who's there? A Samaritan. And you'll see she brings it up later about these two different mountains. So they had a temple on Mount Gerizim, which was like a counterfeit Jewish temple where the Samaritans worshipped. And then they had a temple in Jerusalem. And they would argue back and forth about what the Scripture had said. So, that's some of the, the, the history. And Jacob, uh, when, he came, when, he, when he came to, and when he dug that well, he actually bought a piece of ground at a place called Shechem. And you'll find that in Exodus 33 and Genesis 48 and Joshua 24. He bought a piece of ground which he bequeathed or he gave as an inheritance to Joseph. And Joseph's bones were, already, were, origin, were eventually buried there. So there's a history of the Samaritans that if we can understand the level of animosity and the hate and the betrayal and what's going on in two systems and two temples, it paints a picture of what we're about to read now. So I hope that was helpful to you. Let's go to John 4 verse 1. Therefore, 
When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. I'm going to read that again. But he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called, some people call it Sychar, it's actually called Suchar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. That, was, that Suchar is the ancient same place. It used to be called Shechem, now it's called Suchar. Now Jacob's well was there, as we understand, on Mount, by Mount Gerizim. And Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman, verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city, into to the city of Suchar, the city of Samaria, to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This woman was not only just a Samaritan and Jesus a Jew, she was a woman and he was a man. And the, the culture then was women would go early in the morning in groups to the wells to draw water. And it was actually, there was an old saying that if you wanted to find a wife, go wait by the well because they would have all these groups of women. But if you were like considered an outcast or if you had done something shameful, then these kind of women would go by themselves in the middle of the day, in the heat of the day, and make the journey. And so this is the outcast of outcasts, this woman. And Jesus comes to her and begins to speak to her. And so, in order to move from being uncomfortable to unstoppable, I'm going to speak to you briefly about the positioning of God, the perspective of God, and partnering with God. The position of God. It says, as we read, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, when you understand the text, it's interesting that it says that, because Samaria was the direct route to where he was going. It was as the crow flies, to go directly through Samaria. But the road and the path that had been established to get from where he was to where he was going, and it was, it even tells you, uh, he had to go to, I think he was going to Galilee. Yeah, he was going to Galilee. There was a road that was built that went along the Jordan River, which went around Samaria. And that's always the road everyone traveled. People would grow up all their life and never go to Samaria if they were Jewish. They would just go along the road along the Jordan River. But it says he needed to go through Samaria. It wasn't because he needed to save time. We know the end of the story. He spent two days there. Well, in the next chapter, Jesus reveals, I only do what I see my father doing. That's what he says the very next chapter in John chapter 5. So, I believe Jesus went there intentionally because the father sent him there. Which means so did his disciples. And then he sends his disciples into the city, into the center of the place where they do not want to be. Speaking to people they do not want to speak to. Being in a place they do not want to be at. And sometimes life, because that was their life following Jesus. Life puts us on a highway. I, I remember years ago, it was maybe 10, 12 years ago, I, I had this repetitive dream of me going onto a highway and there was no exits. And so eventually I asked my father, 
I said, Dad, I keep having this dream. And he smiled at me and said, well, good luck. And I said, well, that's great. That doesn't help me. What do you mean? And he said, well, son, it's obvious. When you get on a highway where there's no exits, God's saying there's things you're going to have to go through. There's no way to go around. And sometimes life puts us on a highway with no exits. And we're going to have to go through something, and we cannot go around it. We cannot avoid it. It's got nothing to do with us. And what is happening now is how many people feel like that. But when we learn to see God's work in it and what God can do with it, we are actually propelled into purpose every single time. And so I believe Jesus took them there to equip them for what was coming, his disciples, which was what? Well, they are going to carry the gospel into the world. And it's going to take them into situations that are uncomfortable. It's going to take them into cultures that they do not like and they do not agree with. And they have to learn how to see the purposes of God amidst fear, amidst panic, amidst being uncomfortable, amidst when life is putting you in situations where you don't want to be. It even says, you know, the Bible doesn't waste words. It even says it was about the sixth hour. The only other time in the New Testament that that phrase is used in relation to Jesus is when he was on the cross. It says, at the sixth hour, the sun was darkened and the temple curtain, the veil was torn. Talking about the forgiveness and our access to God. He died for humanity at the sixth hour. So this is pointing to the gospel. Everything about it is pointing to the gospel. And so he speaks to the Samaritan woman, as we'll come to read, about eternal life. And it was the sixth hour. See why? Because he's saying, lady, I am going to offer salvation to the world at a sixth hour, coming soon. And so he speaks to her about eternal life. He calls it the gift of God. And his disciples were going to be the ones who carried that message. They had to allow God to position them when they were put in places they didn't want to be. I'll say that again. We have to allow God to position our hearts when we find ourselves in a place where we don't want to be and then in learn to partner with him and gain his perspective. Because God is at work. With everything that's going on, God is at work. So Jesus takes them. He sends them into the city. They don't want to be there. He places them on a highway they don't want to be on. But he's teaching them what? How to reach people they would have never even spoken to before. And I believe when life takes us on a journey where we don't necessarily want to go, it's God's way of sometimes using that situation to teach us and to remind us about the mission that we're actually on, the Great, the great Commission. So there's a repositioning that takes place. Many of you feel like you are there. I'm in a place I don't want to be. It's like there's a storm going on, but how can God use this? Well, what about your marriage, your children, the people around you that you wouldn't normally speak to, the uncomfortable situation you find yourselves in? Can God use it? Yes. Is He trying to use it? Yes. Is He trying to reposition our hearts to see His involvement? Yes. Yes, He is, definitely, because He's good. What does he want to show you? Well, the disciples learned something about themselves. The disciples learned something about Jesus. The disciples learned something about the Father, which we'll see. 
because they learned to find his purpose in an uncomfortable situation. I believe with all my heart this is a season to pray, to fast, to pray like never before because of what is possible. Never before, like I said earlier in my lifetime, I spoke to a gentleman who was a believer over 80. He said he's never seen this in his lifetime. So there's a possibility for the outbreak of God, for the outpouring of God, out of a situation that was formerly very uncomfortable. And I believe that is what he wants to do. So even though Jesus went there and used it to teach his followers, his disciples something, to the positioning of God, there was also things, he also went there for the people. He went there for the Samaritans, but there were things that blocked her perspective. And what blocked her perspective from seeing Jesus? Because they're often what block ours. So let's look at the perspective of God. And it says, let's go read verse 9 to 15. It says, Then when the woman of Samaria, John 4 verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you being a Jew... Ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God, see right now he's just a Jewish man talking to her, but he brings God into it. And who it is who says to you, he intrigues her about himself, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And he's saying, I have something for you. So he, he's, invite, he's intriguing her. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Well, yeah, he was. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock. She goes back to Jacob's well, to Mount Gerizim, to all the issues that separated them. And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. So he's speaking about eternal life. If you knew who it was who spoke to you, if you knew the gift that I came to offer, you would have asked me for a drink. She says, Well, you have nothing to draw from. And he said, you know, if, I, if you drink the water I have, it will become in you a fountain. What's interesting is we, we, we read it earlier in verse 27. It says, when she saw that he was the Messiah, it says she left her water pot there. She went there to draw water with the, in a vessel. Jesus is coming along and saying to her, I am the Messiah, and the water that I have, the eternal life that I have, you become the vessel. I want to put something in you. It's not about natural water. I have living water. And when you drink it, it'll become in you a fountain. He's talking about eternal life and making her a vessel for him. So how do we come to the perspective? Well, it says he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sukhar. You know that word Sukhar means drunken, like to be drunk. means drunken or intoxication or intoxicating. And as much as Jesus is teaching his disciples something, he's also coming there for her. The word Samaritan means guardianship. It actually means watch mountain, to watch on the mountain, watch mountain, and guardianship. So 
What had happened is she grew up in a culture, and she grew up being taught a certain type of faith. And their whole type of faith, the whole culture she grew up, it's not her fault what she grew up in, she was born there. And they grew up looking for the Taheb, looking for, that was their word for the Messiah. Everything about them was the Messiah, we're looking for the Messiah, because they were still Jewish people. However, her faith, her faith and her culture, and her cultural faith, is actually what blocked her from seeing the very one she was seeking when he was standing in front of her. Why do I say that? They had become intoxicated. Suhar. They had filled themselves up with the wrong mission. They were focused on the wrong well, Jacob's well. That's a natural well, natural water. He came to give living water. They were guarding the wrong mountain. They changed the scripture. They were standing on the wrong mountain, guarding the wrong mountain, watching for the wrong mountain. They had picked the wrong battles. You know, their battle was, which temple do we worship in? She even says it to him later. So her cultural faith had blinded her to the very thing she was seeking. Even the Samaritan liturgy for the Day of Atonement, they had the Day of Atonement, they took a phrase from Numbers, and they said when the Taheb comes, when the Messiah comes, water will flow from his buckets. That was their saying about the Messiah. Water will flow from his buckets. That's why she says he speaks about God and about living water, and he says if you knew who it was who spoke to you, and she says you don't even have a vessel to draw from. The Messiah that we know is coming, water will flow from his buckets. It's a reference probably to wealth. So what's happening? Her cultural faith, her cultural upbringing, her, the faith of her day, even though it was in God, had blinded her to the truth of what Jesus was trying to reveal in a situation that is uncomfortable. And so he has to remove the cultural barriers and blindness. And sometimes when there's a shaking which is what's happening now. When things are shaken, clarity comes. Clarity comes. Because now we can see something that we couldn't see before because we were just going through life, going to church, doing things, happening, just our cultural faith, this is what we do. And then there comes a shaking and a stirring and things suddenly can become clear if we choose it and if we partner with the Lord. Because in her mind, she's saying, you're not lining up with the Messiah, with the Taheb that I'm looking for. Because he's going to come with, in a sense, many buckets, and you're asking me to draw you a drink? And we do that to the Lord all the time. Lord, you're not lining up with my view of you. We do that to him all the time. And he explains, no, it will become a fountain inside you. And when things become a fountain inside you, you become my vessel, and you leave your vessel over there. Yet she still sees it in the natural. She says, give me that water so I don't have to come here anymore. She's just seeing it only in the natural. So when the normal flow of life blinds us, we have to sometimes adjust what we've become intoxicated with. Suhar, intoxication, drunk, what we've, what we've filled our life with. We have to adjust when there's a shaking. How can we tell sometimes? Well, when there's a shaking, what battles are we picking? The battles we pick now reveal a lot. They chose the wrong battle. They made it all about the mountain and the which mountain to worship on. It was the wrong battle. What issues are we guarding? She guarded the issues of their, you know, 
of their heritage? What history are we clinging to? Because these things reveal what we're filled with. They had become intoxicated, filled with the wrong mission, thinking with the wrong perspective, yet seeking the Lord, yet seeking the Messiah. So when, the, when a shaking of life comes, when life gives you lemons, God will use it to remove cultural blinders and cultural barriers that before we couldn't see. Not your fault, not anyone's fault. We just couldn't see it. But now there's an opportunity to see things with clarity and to see Him in truth and to see Him in life far clearer than before because there's a shaking and the, 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 the dross, the dregs fall off. Now we can see who is my God, really? That's what happened with her. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And lastly, partnering with God. Partnering with God. Let's go to, this is the last one. Go to John 4, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, we're going to read 15 to 26. Please give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So she's seeing it only on the natural plane. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. How many of you would like that word of knowledge from the Lord? The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. It's interesting how she went. He went from a Jewish man then to a prophet in her eyes, and then you'll see to the Messiah. Our fathers, now she brings up the mountain issue. So he, 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 in a sense, exposes her sin. He reveals her sin. Not to trap her, not to punish her, which we'll see, to do something else. So she makes it all about this history. She's either trying to divert attention from what he's just said, or, as a Jewish man, he, would, he could have enforced her to offer a sacrifice for the sin she's been caught in. And now she doesn't want to walk all the way to Jerusalem. We don't know the reason, but it's most likely one of those two. So she starts, in a sense, a political fight. She says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. Back to Mount Gerizim. Back to their temple. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. She's still seeing things on a natural plane. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You know that chronologically, that's the first time Jesus in his preaching to people references God as the Father to a Samaritan woman. You worship what you do not know. We worship we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. There's an opportunity for offense, but she didn't pick it up. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that the Messiah is coming, one who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. That was part of also their Samaritan culture. They had a saying about that, that He will teach us all things. They took it from Deuteronomy as well. And he will answer all our questions. And He said, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. And He reveals Himself for who He is. 
So all her cultural barriers and all the, this is what the Messiah will look like, this is what it's going to be, all of that is now removed, and she can see clearly. It's interesting to me, you talk about partnering with God, that he reveals to this outcast of outcasts something so important, such a famous part of Scripture, those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and in truth. He says it only to her. He never said it to anyone else. The disciples weren't even there at this point. He reveals such treasure to this woman, this outcast of outcasts. So she couldn't see it on the spiritual plane, so Jesus makes it personal. Go call your husband. And we know what happened. Well, I have, you know, no husbands. He says, actually, you've had five, and the one you're living with now is not your husband. So he exposes her, uses a word of knowledge to reveal her sin, but not to punish. He wants to reveal to her, I have not come to punish, I have come to save. There is a sixth hour coming where I will open worship for all people. It's not how you think, ma'am. It's not how you think, lady. I will open. The veil will be torn on the sixth hour, and I will open for all people to come. It's not about which mountain. You're guarding the wrong mountain. You've picked the wrong fight. He also reveals to her something about intimacy. My dad was showing me this the other day. The word worship means to approach us to kiss. That's what the word worship means. And he's saying, you've been kissing all these men. I am your real husband. The Bible calls Christ the husband of the bride. You've been kissing. You've had a false intimacy. You've been guarding the wrong mountain, but you've also been picking the wrong intimacy. You can now come to, in a sense, kiss the Father, worship the Father from your heart because on the sixth hour, I'm about to remove all barriers. So then the disciples come. We know what happens. The disciples come back and find him speaking with a Samaritan woman. And they marvel. But it ends up changing a city. The disciples did not evangelize that city. She did. She did what they were called to do. Jesus sent them into the city to buy bread. (laughs) They didn't evangelize the city. They just bought bread. Then she goes into the city, passes them on the way probably, and evangelizes the city. Why? (laughs) Because she had had one conversation at a well with Jesus Christ. You see, when life gives us lemons, so to speak, when we follow Jesus, Jesus, he needed to go through Samaria. He didn't necessarily need to. God took him through Samaria. But God will, sometimes life puts us on highways where we have to go through stuff. We have to go through whatever it is, and it's not pleasant. And a lot of the fear right now is not people are not even afraid of the virus. They're afraid of what the grinding halt of everything will do to their finances, to their life, to their marriage, to their children who are now at home. That's what people are struggling with. That's the fear. But yet in that storm, there is a possibility to learn to see from God's perspective. He wants to position your heart to begin to see, to move from uncomfortable to actually being unstoppable, where the gospel goes and actually transforms regions. That is what happened in this story. So the disciples come back and see this woman, and Jesus takes them 
puts them in the center of that city where they do not want to be. Why? To teach them some things. What does he want to teach them? He's teaching them the positioning of God, to look for purpose. He's teaching them to have his perspective, how to find treasure in the outcast of outcasts, how to find treasure in people where they before wouldn't have even spoken to her because they are going to carry the gospel to the world. When we are put on a situation or into a place where we don't want to be, allow God to position the heart, allow God to bring his perspective and begin to look at those right around you because there is treasure there that you've never seen before. And it is there. And he teaches us to partner with him. But in order to partner with him, this woman partnered with Jesus. He went there for a purpose, and she partnered with him, and the city was changed. But in order to partner with Jesus, when there's a shaking in life, allow the Lord. It's not pleasant. doesn't even necessarily mean he's authoring it, but he wants to use it. But if he wants to use it, we have to say, Lord, remove our cultural blinders, our churchianity. Remove the things in our faith and in our culture that are blinding me from partnering with you. This woman had opportunity to be offended. She was the outcast of outcasts, but he, she allowed him to remove all the blinders and all the religious things and all the stuff, and she became a co-laborer with Christ in one conversation. And the fields are white unto harvest. And I know... I know that God is going to use this for good. I know it. And we can move from an outbreak to an outpouring. We can move from something that is uncomfortable to becoming unstoppable. If we would ask the right question in the storm, God, what are you doing? What are you doing? I want to pray this over you. It's a song that has come out recently. It's called The Blessing by Carrie Job. It comes from Scripture. So before we end, I want to just thank you for joining us. I miss you guys. I love you all. And for those who are watching, they're not part of free life. I pray that you have been blessed. And I just want to pray this over you to end. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Father, we thank you for your presence in the homes right now. We thank you for the positioning of our hearts. We thank you for fear that is leaving and faith that is coming to the heart. We thank you that you have a purpose in this. Whether you authored it or not, that's the wrong battle. But you do have a purpose and you do have a plan and you will use it because you are good. I thank you that we are learning how much we actually long for one another and long for community and affection. Lord, we bless you. We love you. Help us to find what you are doing and to partner with you in our lives, in our hearts, in our children, in our marriage, and also in our cities. In the name of Jesus. Amen. The sermon will be up on the YouTube channel, hopefully, in a few days. Bless you. Love you. Goodbye.